0: Let me know. We'll do the phone back up. We ready? All right. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are not in Proverbs tonight. We are in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Although we're just learning that this morning's recording didn't happen, so I may have to reteach that. And uh, that's too bad. It was a good class this morning. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Basically, uh, verses 17 through 21. And uh, anticipating this marvelous rapture event that uh, hopefully will happen tonight, because I don't want to drive home in this kind of rain. Let's just uh, hear a trumpet and get out of here. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. And that's uh, there's a lot of doctrine in that, and we're going to talk about a couple of these issues here this evening. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness. To, uh, to bless our time of study, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessing we have to assemble together. And we, uh, we ask for your blessings, Father. We ask for your help with some of the difficulties we're having on the technical side of things. But Father, uh, You're in charge of, of everything, and so we, uh, we leave ourselves in Your hands in what You want to have accomplished. So glorify Your Son, build us up in the faith, strengthen us in the inner man, minister Your Word to Your children this evening. We thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright. I do not have a microphone runner tonight, so if uh, Doug wants to do that, or Kevin, or Lewis, or anybody, really, we can, uh, we can fight over that. And, okay, no fight. Kevin's going to do it. Appreciate that. And I'll even give you the first question if you want to have, since you're running the microphone. Or not. Okay. All right, what questions do we have tonight? Yes? No? Maybe so? Okay, it's going to be an easy night. Thank you, then. Is there one? Okay. All right. We're good. Philippians chapter 3. So in dealing with our citizenship, we find, of course, that this is the antidote to earthly mindedness. And uh, really... Uh, if you find yourself uh, in a worldly mode, this was point four in the outline the antidote to earthly mindedness is our heavenly citizenship and the imminent homecoming via the rapture of the church. It is uh, a great motivator knowing that at any moment that uh, that trumpet could sound. And so it's motivational to keep short accounts, to stay in fellowship. If uh, we catch ourselves out of fellowship, to confess sooner rather than later. I realize that carnality likes itself and wants to delay the confession and oftentimes when we are in darkness we know we should confess but we kind of delay that because we've got just a little more fun we want to have and, and so we compound the discipline that much more uh, with every, uh, every delay when we choose to defy the conviction of the Holy Spirit and be restored to fellowship. So uh, no, it, it really is, it's a good antidote and uh, we appreciate that. We saw the aspect of citizenship and then the aspect of eagerly awaiting. Understand our citizenship is in heaven along with our heart treasury. That's Matthew six twenty and 21. Our spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. Remember we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Also our seat of authority in Ephesians 2, 6. That we are seated with Christ, that we are in session as well as Christ being in session, that the bride of Christ is the church, is the uh, uh, is a heavenly people that is seated where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's also where our mindful attention is supposed to be, according to Colossians three verses one and two, and our marketplace. That is the uh, place where we go and purchase everything necessary to to remedy every issue, every shortcoming. If we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, then the provision for all of that is in the heavenly marketplace. And we go to Him and we purchase. And we purchase garments to cover our nakedness. We purchase eye salve to anoint our eyes. And uh, any other uh, aspect, if we think we're rich but really we're, we're poor, well we go to Him and we buy the gold refined by fire. And uh, in different uh, applications there. Anyway, the the message to Laodicea in Revelation 3 is one that I think we should be paying more attention to as we center on these things. And then we eagerly wait, epic decamize a vocabulary on that, and we are eagerly awaiting a Savior and our revelation in Him and our bodily redemption. It's the last part that hasn't been saved yet. Our soul was saved, our spirit was made alive, but not one thing has happened Uh, to our body in terms of salvation until we are absent from this body and at home with the Lord. And so the rapture of the church is the great salvation, the redemption of our bodies, where if we happen to be living at the time, uh, remember the dead in Christ rise first and we're going to see that tonight, that uh, for those that have gone on before us, uh, they have preceded us in death, they will also precede us in, in resurrection because they will return with the Lord and whereas He stops in the air, they come all the way to the ground and into the grave and fetch their bodies and come out in a glorified state, then, uh, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. And so we'll be in that passage tonight as well. But the uh, the final uh, element to be applied in terms of our salvation is the redemption of of our bodies. And so we're looking forward to that as we employ our spiritual gifts, as we walk by faith through the Holy Spirit. And so we're eagerly waiting, which means we're busy. That means we're serving. That means we're faithful. That means we're not the wicked, lazy slave that couldn't bother to keep oil in their lamps, right? We're going to be, we're going to be effectively serving in a, in a constant state of readiness because uh, we don't know the, the day or the hour. And so when it comes to the rapture of the church then under point 5 the rapture of the church is typically taught from 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15. Yet the details from Philippians 3.21 provide details not found in the normally used passages. And so really I'm I'm coming to appreciate the Philippians account uh, for its own sake and what it can do to, to flesh out some of the details that are found in 1 Thessalonians and found in in uh, 1 Corinthians. Other passages as well that aren't really in this study but we would be good to review them would include John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, if it were not so I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you then I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. John 14 is a powerful rapture passage given prior to the church even being revealed, prior to the mystery being unveiled. It is a rapture promise given still under the mystery circumstances of, a, of an unrevealed church. And so uh, that makes it a pretty neat text related to, uh, related to these things. Anyway, there's some other passages we can turn to, but these are the main ones. If you're going to teach the doctrine of the rapture, First Thessalonians chapter 4 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then bring folks here and start to show these things. So I think there's some details related to this that, uh, that are useful. So let's uh, remind ourselves of these things now. First of all, starting with what does Thessalonians teach? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and remind ourselves what Thessalonians teaches. So, subpoint A Thessalonians teaches, and there should be a colon instead of a period, but that's okay. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. So, um, picking up with verse 13, there's a lot that precedes it, but not necessary for the rapture issues here. Um, uh, Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so really he introduces the gospel or the uh, rapture doctrine, but he introduces it in a connection with the fundamentals of our faith. Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Well who doesn't? If you, if you name the name of Christ, if you're a church age believer, then you believe that he died and rose again. I mean that's, that's what it's about. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so even so. Rapture doctrine should be so solid in our thinking that we have the the identical degree of certainty as it applies to the rapture that we do as it applies to the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. All right, Now this is a particular promise that we as a body are going to be united for the first time ever. That this is a promise for the corporate body of Christ. That it's not for Old Testament saints. It's not for angels. It's not for anybody except believers between Pentecost and rapture. It's specifically for the bride and the bride only. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so physical death is spoken of in the metaphor of sleep and obviously you've got all kinds of dead humans, right? Uh, Adam and Eve and Seth and, and all the Gentiles, Noah and and so forth, uh, they are still asleep but they're not in Jesus. Let's keep in mind the positional truth of in Christ is limited to the post-Pentecost era. That's our era, the, the, the church age. See, uh, No Old Testament saint could be in Christ because Christ was not victorious at Calvary and seated at the right hand of the Father. He had not yet sent the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit couldn't baptize any believer into union with God the Son, not before the cross, not before the uh, commencement of the church age. And so the resurrection here is not for the resurrection of Old Testament saints. It's the resurrection only of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord and so there is one living generation at the moment that trumpet sounds. Every every living, regenerate person on the planet, every believer that's alive at that moment of the trumpet, that's who is spoken of here in this verse. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They get raised first. They proceed first. They've already been in heaven for whatever length of time. Uh, for some of these, I mean, going back to the first century, we're talking they've been in heaven for 2,000 years already. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, we're not going to precede them. They will return with the Lord and they will be raised as we see. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And this is extraordinary because otherwise He's been commanded to have a seat. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But this is an occasion that He's allowed to, uh, to descend and to gather us and bring us back home. So he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And I like the way that he varied the vocabulary so people want to get all weird about the difference between in Jesus and in Christ as if it, it could be a different thing I suppose in a different context. But here they're used together. Here they're used in a, in a, in a, in a tandem that, uh, that links them together. They've fallen asleep in Jesus so they are the dead in Christ, and they rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. Then. So they rise first, then. Now I've speculated that we don't know how long that then takes, you know. That uh, the dead in Christ rise first, then. And it's probably just a twinkling of an eye later. It's probably just that quick. But it doesn't have to be. If it was 10 minutes later, it would still qualify as then. If it was an hour later, it would still qualify as then. As long as sequentially it follows, you know, later happens later. But I do think and there's nothing in this text about twinkling of an eye. That comes in the, in the Corinthians record. Alright. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now the caught up together is a single verb, so we're mutually snatched. There's only one snatching. So you have to have resurrected church saints and then us and we get snatched together. That's the the picture here. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where we get our word rapture. Now I know there's a lot of anti-dispensationalists there's a lot of uh, folks that don't like our kind of teaching and they they, uh, say well the word rapture is never in the Bible. And they're just Idiots, alright. They're try I think if they don't know any better, then they should get educated and stop spouting such nonsense. If they do know better, then I think they're willfully being deceptive. And that's satanic. They they do know better. Alright? So um, as far as it goes, harpazo is the Greek verb that means to snatch. Rapto is the Latin term that means the same thing as harpazo. And rapto is the is like velociraptors and other kind of raptors that you have. Uh, is are those are the the, the predatory uh snatching kind of kind of birds and so that's what's going to happen we're going to get raptured and our harpodzoe maybe i mean maybe they'd like it better if we just instead of calling it the rapture we call it the harpazo event or whatever it is whatever you want to call it it's this thing right here okay and for the folks that deny that this is going to happen uh they're living in defiance of the scriptures say You know, just ask them if if you can take a sharpie and mark that whole chapter out then if they they don't believe it's true. All right? So, this says that uh, a living generation when the trumpet sounds are going to be gathered together with, so they're not going to proceed and neither are they going to be left out. They don't have to die first. That living generation does not get left out when the 20 centuries of, of uh, church history precede them in the resurrection. All right. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the, the, the air, that's just the meeting place. We don't stay there, we just meet there. All right. And then where? Back to heaven. Right? Back to heaven. That's the whole point of meeting him in the air because he can't land on the earth yet. That's the whole point of meeting Him in the air. And for the crowd that wants to kind of equate rapture with Second Advent say, well that's all the same, their model has us launching up to the air, meeting the Lord, and then dropping right back down immediately for Armageddon and, and all the rest. And that's extremely impossible, okay? For tons of reasons. That's just not even possible. So uh, if you rapture everybody at the Second Advent, then there's nobody left in a mortal body to populate the millennial earth. And so how do you end up with sinners at the end of the millennium? How do you end up with unbelievers in open rebellion against Jesus Christ if every believer on the planet at Second Advent gets raptured and glorified? Then, uh, then of course we beat all the unbelievers and kill them all and send them all to hell and then there's nobody left mortal on the earth. If that model is correct. If a post-tribulational rapture happens that leaves no mortal believers to, to procreate and populate the millennial earth. So that's why that's a non-starter. To meet the Lord in the air. Plus John 14 said, when I come again to receive you to myself that I will take you to where I am. He's been in heaven for the last 2,000 years preparing our home. He hasn't been in Jerusalem. Right? Alright. So we meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Alright? It's a universal rapture and it has eternal consequences. There's no exception to the so we. He doesn't break it down and talk about only the overcomers or only the winners or only the the partakers or only the only the victoriously rewarded church. It's we. It's all of us, the dead in Christ and the living in Christ. It's the whole body of Christ from Pentecost to Rapture with no exceptions. It is—it's uh, insane. The folks that want to try to put forth some kind of a partial rapture theory, or have Jesus take part of His bride with Him to heaven and leave part of His bride on earth to go through the uh, the tribulation—how insane is that? I—I've uh, never heard of a of a groom yet in the history of marriages that—and uh, and we got some coming up before the end of the year. Three weddings before before the end of the year, and uh, I promise you that those grooms are going to take the whole bride with them when when they're done. The, that's, that's what you do when the wedding's over. You take the entire bride with you. So uh, we are going to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is it. Always with the Lord, ever after. Ever after. And so from that moment on, whether it's the tribulation, it's the wedding feast, it's the Bema seat, it's the wedding supper, it's um, the rebuilding of the temple or whatever it is, it's the destruction of the heavens and the earth, it's the great white throne, it's the new heavens and the new earth, or whatever it is. Every event, every post-rapture event between the rapture and omega, wherever the Lord goes we're there. We're there. Because it says thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? And that's our blessing as His bride. We are always at His side. This is our role. And so it says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so essentially this is it. And as you're going through uh, 1 Thessalonians, you can use this, you can teach rapture doctrine pretty simply just by going through this text. Physically dead church age saints presently in heaven will come with Jesus at His coming. So we're talking about, you know, the Apostle Paul and Peter and all the first century believers all the way through 20 centuries of believers all through church history the church fathers the reformers the you know the great heroes of the church age martin luther and john calvin and, and whoever okay charles spurgeon r b theme all right all these guys that are in heaven now my mother okay the dead in christ will rise first so they will come with jesus at his coming whereas he's going to stop in the air they're going to return to their former bodies being raised and glorified first before us. And that's the order. So, you know, you can imagine all the places you want to be when that trumpet sounds. Um, I, I, it crosses my mind when I'm, anytime I'm in a cemetery, anytime I'm uh, conducting a funeral service, and you're looking out across the fields and there's all those tombstones, and you think, if that trumpet sounded right now, <laughs> that whole field is going to be you know pockmarked with all these exploding graves and, and, and glorified saints springing forth. How cool would that be? <laughs> and uh, yeah, imagine that and so uh, this is the order on it. and if you ever read the Larkin charts, go through Larkin's book on dispensational truth, and he draws, he draws the diagram that way and he shows the souls that are coming from heaven, down to the ground, into the earth to fetch, fetch their bodies, and then standing upon the earth. Alright. So those are the physically dead church age saints presently in heaven. Secondly, physically living church age saints presently on earth. Hopefully that's us. Hopefully that's tonight. Physically living church age saints presently on earth will then be raptured, snatched together with the raised in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. So this is the two-step process on this. Physically living church-age saints presently on earth. And like I say, it's probably not but a moment in between uh, step one and step two. I don't expect, I mean, you can speculate, what if it was an hour? Can you imagine, what if it was an hour? What an interesting hour would that be? (laughs) You know? An interesting hour would that be? Because there would be people face-to-face with people that have been dead for years. And uh, what are you doing here? You know, I, I can't see that, but I also can't dismiss it as impossible based upon the word then in, uh, in verse 17. Anyway. Makes me wonder, since uh, the urn with my mother's ashes is sitting in my office, and uh who knows, I could be studying hard one day and then hear the trumpet, and then my mom would be sitting there, and I, wow. All right, so that's step two. Then what do we see? The consequence. The consequence of this rapture is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. The consequence of this rapture is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. And so. If you happen to be reading Jody Dillo, or you happen to be reading uh, some of these other guys that have some, uh, I think, flawed understandings of mythology. Of, of mythos is the word for reward, and mythology is the doctrine of reward. They, uh, I think, that they misapply some of the parables in the Gospels, and they they abuse some of the terms like outer darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And they actually have the idea of being expelled from the feast, expelled from the millennial feast, not as a losing salvation, but as an eviction from millennial rewards and some kind of a, a, a loss of, of fellowship in the millennium. Uh, that's not for the church anyway. Those are Israel passages nonetheless. And they, they contrast Jew, uh, Jewish faithlessness with Gentile faithfulness. Because Jesus was amazed that the centurion had the faith that he hadn't seen any Jew have in all of Israel. And so he made that promise that many will come from the east and the west and will dine with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but some of the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And there's going to be some Jews that aren't born again, aren't saved, and so they don't get to partake in in the millennial blessings. Anyway, if you want more on that we taught it in the Life of Christ series, but there are some pretty popular authors out there in our circles. I hate to say it, in doctrinal circles, in evangelical circles, in the free grace camp, that that are listed in the you know the faithalone.org uh, church directory, that uh, they got a they got an amazing gospel message of of grace through faith, faith alone, and Christ alone. But then when it comes to rewards, I think they they go off the rails a bit, particularly with this. Uh, partial church exclusion from the millennial feasting. And that's uh, there is no partial church exclusion from millennial feasting. There's no partial bride. We shall always be with the Lord. Even the biggest church age loser that died the sin to death and has no reward. All he has is wood, hay, and stubble. All he has is a resurrection body and yet he himself is saved, yet so is through fire. The least church age saint is greater than the greatest Old Testament saint. And that's just a positional truth reality that's the grace of who we are in the Bride of Christ, so I hope that's clear. Any questions on that? Is that are we good on you have a question related to that? Go ahead. But is, uh, yes, God the Son is omnipresent, but God the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so God the Son. Even though God the Son is omnipresent, God the Son uh, laid aside His privileges under kenosis. He was born of a virgin. He received a body. In the first advent of His humility He laid aside every privilege and and was monopresent in His humanity. Um, Now He does have all of His privileges back in resurrected glory, however having said that, (laughs) yes, God the Son remains omnipresent But Jesus Christ, the God man, has a resurrection body that is a mono present resurrection body. And so the omnipresent God, the Son, operates in a mono present resurrection body of hypostatic union as the God man. And that's eternal. So where he goes, we go. Good question. It's a great question. All right. So thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it's easy enough to find. It's uh, right there at the end of chapter 4, it comes right before, therefore comfort one another with these words. Uh, I don't know about you, but thus we shall always be with the Lord. Those are some very comforting words. I like those words. And then we're told to comfort one another with those words. That's easy to do. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. I love that. See? And uh, this this actually gives us the better perspective instead of, you know, dying and going to heaven forever. We're not going to be in heaven forever. We're going to be we're only going to be in Heaven until the rapture. And then we come down and then we go back and we have the judgment seat. Then we come down after the tribulation. And we reign on earth for a thousand years because Jesus is reigning on earth for a thousand years. And then heavens and earth are destroyed and then the new Jerusalem comes down out of Heaven and um, prepared as a bride. And so we have our new dwelling. I believe that the heavenly Jerusalem is the, is the bride residency with, with our Lord. Okay, so those are the details from Thessalonians. And we don't build the doctrine of the rapture based on one passage alone. We also have uh, another passage as well. So uh, point four then. What is not found in the Thessalonian record? There is no mention of eye twinkling. Okay, we'll get that next. There's no mention of a transformation. As far as Thessalonians is concerned, the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain get snatched up together. Thessalonians does not mention our transformation. Now thankfully Corinthians does, and we can compare Scripture to Scripture, and we can synthesize everything into a coherent uh, model, into a coherent view as it relates to this event. And it's a good thing 1 Corinthians 15 talks about our transformation because getting snatched in this body would not be a pleasant experience. You know, getting snatched in this body would hurt getting ripped up through those ceiling tiles and up through the steel roof. And, and uh, this, this body wouldn't handle that very well. So there's no mention of the eye-twinkling transformation. But combined with Corinthians, it does present a clear picture. All right. What else does this passage not mention? Sorry, I meant to put it on here. No mention of the day or the hour. Okay? (laughs) No mention of the day or the hour. If if, if there's somebody that's selling a book that says he can prove when the rapture is, save your money. Because he's selling a book and he's wrong. He doesn't know, nobody knows. All right. Now secondly, we've got the Corinthians message. So point B, Corinthians teaches a number of things three things. 1 Corinthians 15 Which book did Paul write first? Thessalonians or Corinthians? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Yeah. Galatians was the very first that he wrote, then 1 Thessalonians, then 2 Thessalonians, then 1 Corinthians. All right. Then I think Philippians. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. Anyway, it's good to good to review those kind of things. All right, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this is a long chapter. This uh Uh, I mean you get the death, burial, resurrection of Christ early in the chapter, you get the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The chapter just takes off from there. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter of Scripture. Now in this, in terms of the resurrection, is the proof of it, the necessity for it, and how insane Christianity is without it. If you try to be a New Testament believer priest and there is no resurrection, again, you're wasting your time. What are you doing? There's no point. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Without the resurrection of Christ, the New Testament is nonsensical. It's a lie. And we're wasting our time. So, that's the uh, the issue there. Now, with respect to the resurrection, then there's additional details here. And um, so he contrasts the first Adam with the second Adam. He talks about some of these things, talks about how um, each in his own order. So verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the firstfruits. He is the first ever permanently raised dead person. Okay? And I know there were three in the Old Testament that were raised, but they were raised they were resuscitated back to a mortal human life. Jesus was the first to be raised in a resurrection body. And so uh, but each in his own order Christ the first fruits first fruits Christ. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's our rapture of the church right there those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end. The third resurrection is the resurrection of the end. And that uh, is the third one that's listed here. It's the one that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 as both the first resurrection and the last resurrection in at uh, the beginning and at the end of the millennial kingdom. Then comes the end. And then there's other things that happen in the end, including handing over the kingdom... Uh, abolishing rule and authority and power, reigning until He has put His enemies under His feet, and uh, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Alright. Some other issues here on why we're wasting our time if there's no resurrection. Then in verse 35 someone will say, well how are the dead raised? You know, people are going to insist on remaining skeptical until you can prove to them how it's going to happen. And uh, that's idiotic as well. It's like the creation science people. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how did He create the heavens and the earth? I don't know. He just did it. He, he's, he spoke and it happened. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He wanted a universe. He got a universe. But then they, they say, well, I can't really believe that until you can prove to me how He did it. Alright? And that's the same insanity we're looking at here with respect to the resurrection. And so Paul calls him a fool. Someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come, you fool? <laughs> what are you asking that kind of thing for? Anyway, it kind of answers itself anyway. Don't you see how this stuff works? That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of weed or something else. And so planting is, in fact, a death, planting is a burial. Adam was told to plant. Adam there was God planted a garden. So if God planted a garden, there was a lot of death before Adam sinned. Because God planted a garden. And the scripture says that uh, you're burying this thing as a death, a picture of death. All right. And then uh, (laughs) you put a seed in the ground, and what comes out? It's not a seed that comes out, it's something different. It's been changed. Likewise with us. We go into the ground and what comes out has been changed. So, God gives it a body just as He wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. You're not going to plant an apple seed and be surprised when the orange tree comes out. It just doesn't happen like that. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And I wonder sometimes with what we've done with transplants and pig valves and other things, I wonder sometimes. We're going to learn down the road that uh, medical science went to some unbiblical places. All right, Heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. Now I'm not going to go into it tonight, but it is significant that this is called a body of glory. Okay? Elsewhere, it's called a body of humility, and it's called a body of sin, and it's called a body of death, and it's called a lot of other things. But it is called a body of glory, the earthly glory of this earthly body. And we bear that glory first so that we can bear the next glory next. There's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, glory of the star, star differs from star and glory. So is the resurrection of the dead. It has sown a perishable body, it has raised an imperishable body. So that that dying, decaying thing that went into the ground, when it comes back out at the trumpet, imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. You know, and sowing and raising, that, that sounds better. It keeps the agricultural motif alive in the passage. It's more poetic than buried. The corpse is buried, but that's what we're talking about. It has sown a natural body, it has raised a spiritual body. The word natural there refers to the soul. We're body, soul, and human spirit, but this mortal body is a soulish body. And the one that's raised is a spiritual body. Alright. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul, the last Adam became a living spirit. However the spiritual is not first but the natural then the spiritual. Don't get ahead of things. Keep the cart behind the horse. Let's... Uh, follow the program here. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That's the promise in resurrection. Now, and so all of that is very compatible with everything else we know in terms of resurrection where the dead in Christ rise first. Okay? Christ rose on the first day on that Easter Sunday and the stone rolled away Uh, every other church age saint is going to be raised in that fashion a bodily resurrection. Now I say this brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. So expanding upon what he taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 which these guys would have had access to He was living in Corinth when he wrote Thessalonians, okay? So they understand this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So those that have died in Christ and rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, if we get snatched up together with them and we do, we we can't get there in our physical bodies, in our flesh and blood bodies. And so now we get a detail here that's not in Thessalonians. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep but we will all be changed. Okay? And that's perfectly harmonious with 1 Thessalonians 4. We will not all sleep. Not everybody's going to physically die. When the trumpet sounds, He doesn't kill every believer on the planet. He could if He wanted to. You think, well wouldn't that be simpler? <laughs> no. He keeps us alive, we are alive and remain and then we're changed. Metamorpho- or meta. Whatever it is, schizomai here, schematic. We get changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And all the arguments about the twinkling of an eye, okay? Does the does everything fit into that twinkling, from the trumpet to the shout to the descent to the dead and Christ rise first to uh, to being changed to be snatching up? That's an awful lot in a twinkling, okay? I think grammatically, I can make a good case that the twinkling, the moment, only counts for the change. But be that as it may. <clears throat> in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So that's helpful. Because otherwise the snatching would hurt, the snatching would kill us. Okay, And then being killed in the upper stratosphere we'd have to be raised again somehow. But anyway, here we are. We're not going to die. The living rapture generation doesn't die. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. The normal way that happens is with sowing and reaping. The normal way that happens is to bury the perishable and then resurrect the imperishable. But we're going to be changed if the rapture generation does not have to die first, and it still gets to put on the, the imperishable. For when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. One generation of living saints that death never touches. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what Corinthians teaches. Physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. Physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. And and it's it's curious to me because I've read some of the literature that dismisses the rapture doctrine. They, uh, in fact, you know... What's left behind in you know, Left Behind is one of the titles, and so they're mocking Tim LaHaye and they're mocking the Rapture, and they they're proving or trying to prove biblically how we've got it all wrong, and whatever. And then they go so far they talk about how crazy it is for to to transform this body without physical death. It'd be like just taking a seed and instead of planting it and bearing it, just taking a seed and turning it into a into a, a fruit tree of some kind, you know. Well. Like God can't do that? Yeah, is that what you're saying? You, you just think it's beyond what He's capable of? okay? In my view it's actually easier for God to transform a living saint than to resurrect somebody who's been dead 2,000 years. You know. Those Christians that got thrown to the lions or were eaten. And, I mean where are their body parts? You know, or sailors lost at sea. Or I mean there's a whole lot of you know you ever think about it? Where are their remains? Are they all together? Are they scattered all over the places? You know they had their ashes thrown to the wind and so to me, that's more miraculous finding all the molecules of all the believers for twenty centuries of church history. I believe God's capable of finding every subatomic particle that used to be a believer <laughs> or part of a believer, okay. There's different theories on that too, by the way. Um, because we're constantly renewing our bodies anyway. We're constantly shedding skin cells and adding new skin cells, and, and we're con- our body's constantly being rebuilt anyway through the whole process. So, you know, the, the latest version of you that goes into the ground is not really a big deal as far as God taking some part of what used to be you and, uh, and glorifying it into, uh, into your new resurrection body. Uh, anyway. So um, these are the details. Physically living church saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. Point two, in an eye-twinkling moment the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and the living saints will be changed. That's the order. So it's slightly different than the Thessalonians' message, but we harmonize them and there's no problem. So the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised, the living saints will be changed. That's the Corinthians record. Okay, you had a question? No, no. They've got to go get their bodies first and then they're raised, then they're on the earth. But they don't launch until we all launch together. Yeah. So they will be raised first, which means they are standing upon the earth for you know, a split second or ten seconds or a minute or an hour, I don't know how long. I don't think it's an hour. All right. So, the dead are raised, we will be changed. Now there's no mention of snatching. There's no mention of any rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no snatching vocabulary in this chapter. There's no mention of a meeting in the air. In fact the chapter closes with uh, death where is your sting and victory through Jesus and therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so if all we had was this chapter all by itself we wouldn't know anything about snatched up to the clouds or going to heaven or anything like that. We would just think wow the dead in Christ are raised and we're transformed and that's kind of it. Here we are. We wouldn't know about the snatching, the, uh, the great, uh, what do they call that? The genuflex in the sky. I think is what the colonel called it. And, uh, and then returning back to heaven to the homes that he's gone to prepare. There's also no mention here of, I, again, I meant to put it on this slide too. I was going to put it on every single slide. It was going to be really slick. You guys were going to be impressed. There's no mention of a day or a time. There's no mention of a day or a time. It doesn't say, you know, October of 2018. Okay? Uh, The the, the crazies that write those books, that date the dates and do all the things, I will tell you, the vast majority of them, probably 99% of them, they always pick October as the month. So, here we are. Here's another October. And the only reason why, you want to know why? Because of the trumpets. The feast of trumpets. The Jewish feast of trumpets. Okay, Nothing in these chapters says anything about the Jewish feast of trumpets, but it does mention a trump, okay, which could be our president for all I know. I mean, why not? That's kind of cool, isn't it? Anyway, so I should write a book and collect money from all these nincompoops that spend money on those kind of things. I mean, seriously. So no mention of the snatching, no mention of the meeting in the air, but combined with the Thessalonians picture it presents a very clear picture of what we're dealing with. Also no mention of the date or the time. Now, Philippians teaches. And this is useful, this is very useful and I think it goes well and uh, and I'm glad we're here. Philippians teaches. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. Remember it was called a glory in First Corinthians, but here it's called humble, and it again is a transformation, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So that body he had when he walked out of the tomb, when the stone was rolled away and he walked out of the tomb, that's that's what we're getting. Okay? A body in conformity with that resurrection body. And He, Jesus, affects the transformation with the by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. This is, uh, and this is huge, okay? Because this is a degree of glory and a degree of power He's never exercised before. And it, it, we'll have to wrap our minds around it because how do you increase how do you increase uh, omnipotence or how do you increase power or how do you increase glory? But he said, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. And the father said, oh, you're getting much more than that. Okay? He says, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. He's going to receive a greater glory than he had even in the pre-incarnate position as God the Son. There is a maximum glorification that comes with a subjection of all things to himself. And that's the power that he exerts to rapture us. So that's a fun thing. All right. So we have in Philippians we have a contrast between the humble state and the glory state. A contrast between humble state and glory state. And uh, and really, it's a it's an application whereby the glory of the second so surpasses the glory of the first, the first can be thought of as having no glory at all and that's why it's called a body of our humility. The first can be thought of as having no glory at all. Now we've already gone through the 1 Corinthians 15 text whereby we saw that the glory of the earthly is one and the glory of the heavenly is another. That we're each described as, as being a glory. And yet when, the, when we receive the second one, it so far outpasses the first one that it effectively renders it as Having no glory. And uh, that's essentially the doctrine that we studied in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Moses had a glory when he was given the law, but then that glory would fade. And the glory we have now in Christ is so much greater. 2 Corinthians 3 verses 7 through 11. If the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And so that's really the principle at work here when the body of our humble state gives way to the body of our glory state. It so surpasses the glory of the first, the first can be thought of as having no glory at all. We also have an exertion of Jesus Christ's personal power. An exertion of Jesus Christ's personal power. And this has been delegated to Him and this is something that he exercises not only as the God-man, he created the universe as the God-man, but he exercises this authority as the victorious God-man. As the victorious one, the Lamb standing having been slain. And uh, where he says in John 5 that uh, it's all been given to him, all judgment's been given to the Son. And so John five twenty-five through 29 Truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man and so this is the victorious work of jesus christ and now that he is victorious he can exercise this power do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, and will come forth, those who did the good, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. And so all judgment's been given to the Son. Alright. In fact, you could even back up to verse 19 if you like. There's a lot here in this chapter that deals with that. Uh, verse 21, that just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so. The Son also gives life to whom He wishes. See, normally the Father's the agent of resurrection, not for the bride. For the bride, Jesus is transforming us. All right. And then, thirdly, the subjection of all things to Himself, the power that He has to subject all things even to Himself. And it's mentioned here in Philippians, it's related to uh, verses we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15. 25-27. 25 through 27 it's also related to Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 23 and we'll have to close with that Ephesians 1 19 through 23 Verse 18 is a prayer, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. There's no dispensation that's ever had this kind of power directed towards it. In accordance, these are in accordance with the workings of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now notice far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. Remember what we saw in Hebrews? Jesus after He made atonement for sins? What? Was ascended and was seated at the Father's right hand. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things. To Who? Raise your hand to us, to the church. Jesus is head over all things but He ministers the all things to us which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the one who fills. Who is His fullness? Us. The bride. There's a dispensation coming up. that's the dispensation of the fullness. The fullness of times. That's right. And who's the filler and who's the fullness? This is us the Lord and His bride. All right. It's a beautiful thing. So the rapture of the church is what we're looking forward to. I'm out of time, so we'll come back to this. Actually, this kind of wraps up the the chapter, but it's a shame that uh, the Sunday morning crowd wasn't here tonight. So what do I do on Sunday? Do I reteach this? Or do we press on into chapter 4 and say, sorry, you missed it? I guess we'll find out if we got a recording or not. That might make a difference. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for the rapture. And my heart breaks, Father. if All the churches that aren't teaching this or teaching contrary to this, they are stripping away the blessed hope, which is uh, the thrill for any of us. So I do pray, Father, that uh, your Spirit would be at work to open the eyes of pastors around this country to teach truth and to encourage their flock with the imminency of this transformation. Oh, that it were today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.